0: It's uh, always sweet to be here to worship our God and King with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Um, in terms of the message this evening, we are going to be back in First Peter, first time of 2022, and we're looking especially at verses 12 through 19 of First Peter uh, chapter 4, the last eight verses of that chapter. Mic check, how do I sound? I sound good? Okay, good. All right, so everyone, First Peter 4, uh, why don't we go ahead and stand uh, for the reading of God's word as we are able. Okay, the word of God from First Peter. Picking up in verse 12 of chapter 4 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, thank you for this time that we can gather together and be uh, around your word. God, we know that if your spirit is not here and alive and active among us and in each one of us, it is all for naught but we trust that you are and that you are moving. And so, God, uh, for your namesake and your glory, do your your stuff here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) All right. So you might notice uh, there's a discrepancy uh, between what's in the bulletin and on the slide. That's my fault. I changed it at the last minute. Still not convinced it's a great title, but, you know, it's, it is what it is at this point. So we're, we're, we're going with it. You all right with that? Okay, cool. All right, so friends, as, uh, as we come back to First Peter today, uh, one of the things that we notice right away In Peter, in these verses that we just read, is that Peter is once again focusing our attention in on the reality of suffering and of hardship and of struggle in the Christian life. We've seen this really again and again repeated throughout this letter, 1 Peter. Uh, If you kind of were to, to go back and flip through and look at it, it comes up in every chapter Every chapter of 1 Peter, I mean, there's not that many. There's, you know, we're in chapter four, there's five total. But every chapter of 1 Peter, suffering comes up in one way or another. Either it's it's Peter addressing uh, those that he's writing to and addressing their suffering, or he's talking about the sufferings of Jesus and how it connects to their their struggles and, and their issues and their suffering. So as we zoom out and look at this book as a whole, one of the things we see is that that this is clearly Uh, a burden on Peter's heart as he is writing to these believers. We see that he is, uh, you know, again, you go back to the beginning, he's writing to these uh, Christians in these five different territories scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he's got a a heart for them as, as a pastor, as a shepherd, and he wants to address some of the things they're facing, and especially the hardships and the sufferings. And yet, I think we can say a little bit more even than just kind of that in kind of a general sense that he's addressing hardships and sufferings. Because as we especially look at the verses, eight verses that we just read, I think what we can see here and what we want to say is that Peter is actually addressing a specific kind of suffering. Uh, As I thought about it this week, you know, you can think of suffering as a very kind of general, kind of broad, kind of almost like an umbrella category, and within that, there are these, these different types, varieties, you might say, of suffering. Does that sound like fun? It's like a suffering smorgasbord, fruit salad. But like, so for example, let me, let me get more specific here. Um, what, what Peter is not talking about here is he is not talking about the kind of suffering that might come about as, as the result of illness or as the result of disease in our, in our physical bodies. We know a bit about that in these recent days, sickness. Peter's not really talking about suffering and hardship in terms of, of that. We also see, as we look at what, what he's saying and addressing and how he's talking about it, that he's not really talking about the kind of suffering that it comes about as the result of a natural disaster, for example. Again, something we know a little bit about. Right? He's not talking about the suffering that comes from a, a flood Per se, or a, a fire or even a famine that might strike a land and cause struggle and suffering. That's not what he's, what he's after here in these verses. Rather, what Peter is talking about here is the kind of suffering that comes about by way of faithfulness to Jesus in a hostile environment. Steadfastness to Christ in the midst of pressure against Christ. That's the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about. In in a word, in our English language, the word we have for that is the word persecution. Peter is addressing specifically, I think, in these verses, the the kind of suffering of persecution that we see in our world. As we look at the text, we see allusions to this and hints and references to persecution, I think at multiple different points in the letter, but especially two places. I want to point out verse 14, where Peter says, uh, he, he has kind of framed himself up in verses 12 and 13, and then he says, but if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So we can think about what Peter is, is not saying here. He's saying, he's not saying if you are insulted for, you know, the fact that you are having a bad hair day, right, that's not the kind of suffering that he's, that he's talking about, or insult. He's not saying if you are insulted because you are driving poorly on the highway. That's not what he's talking about. He says if you were insulted for the name of Christ because you bear his name, then you are blessed. Verse 16 is kind of similar. Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian. So again, it's, it's not... Uh, you know, if anyone suffers uh, because they have made a poor life decision or if if anyone suffers uh, because, you know, they've invested their money in the wrong thing on the stock market or something like that. We can even look back at the previous verse and see Peter just names it explicitly. He's not talking about the kind of suffering that we bring on ourselves by foolish or even sinful living. No, what he's talking about is the kind of suffering that comes about as we seek to walk faithfully as disciples of Jesus, to to take his word seriously and to live it out in this world, to bear his name upon us as our own. That's what he's talking about. And when that kind of pressure and suffering comes upon us because we are bearing the name of Jesus, that is persecution. And Peter says, let us not be ashamed because of that. And so, again, going back to it, I think this is big, Peter's big concern here. It's his, it's his heart in this letter. And that Peter wants, as he's addressing these disciples, he wants them to be so thoroughly grounded in the gospel, so, so deeply rooted in the truth of God's word, that even when and even if fiery trials come upon them, trials like religious persecution that those kind of trials that that persecution would not work ultimately well it would not work ultimately to destroy their faith but to build it to encourage their faith and to make it stronger that the pressure comes and the faith faith actually blossoms in the midst right like like a diamond The, the heat the darkness the pressure builds up and that's what creates that diamond think that's what Peter is after, why he's preaching the gospel, why he's saying these things to them, that when the pressure mounts, it doesn't lead to collapse, but it leads to more preciousness in their hearts, and their lives. Thinking of two examples of this uh, this week, uh, one is a very extreme example uh, from church history, and another is a very kind of light uh, example of just from my own personal life. Think, thinking of examples where, uh, where pressure or maybe, you know, we could, we would say persecution mounts and it led to kind of a flourishing of faith ultimately rather than a crushing of it. Think about church history. I studied uh, church history a bit in my undergrad, so I don't remember a ton of it uh, as much as I should, but one of the things that always stood out to me and still does is the life and testimony of a guy named Polycarp. I think yep, there he is. He's a good-looking brother right there. Uh, and you might see from the dates there that Polycarp was a, a pretty early-on uh, guy, right? S- 69 to 156 AD. Uh, some people debate; it might be 155 AD. Um, but at any rate, um, Polycarp was a bishop of a city uh, in Smyrna. Uh, bishop basically means he was just kind of—he was kind of over it as a pastor. And it really notably, and I think really cool, actually, he's actually, uh, it's historically documented that he was a, a disciple of uh, the Apostle John, which is neat. He, w- he was actually, when he was a young guy, John was still alive. And so he got to kind of walk around with and learn from John. And so he's a neat character in church history. Um, but, but the reason I bring him up here tonight is because he is also uh, an example of an early martyr in the faith. One of the first martyrs that we have documented that goes beyond the scope of of what the Bible uh, tells us about. And his story, you know, you can actually find this this written account. It's actually called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's it's in certain books you can find. It's also, you know, you can Google it. uh, You know, find PDFs online. And you can just read this account. And it's this attestation of this guy who... At at the point that he becomes a martyr, he's actually lived a long time. He is 86 years old, and he's faithfully serving still at 86, faithfully serving people, faithfully serving the Lord. And uh, and you know the the society around him, particularly the the Roman society, is at a place where it's not having it. It's not liking him. It, they you know polycarp has kind of come to everyone's attention as a guy who's who's a leader uh, in the faith and so they're saying hey this guy needs to uh publicly make known his devotion to caesar right he needs to say caesar is lord he needs to renounce christ and so there's a big back and forth and he ends up after uh you know lots of other details, he ends up in in the the stadium in uh, the city square, and uh, they're kind of interrogating him, and they're trying to get him to, to, uh, to renounce Christ, and he, by the grace of God, he doesn't, and there's this, uh, this quote in the midst of all this dialogue back and forth that he says, which is just really great, Uh, and it's, it's this, I think I have, yeah, um, so it's kind of archaic language, but he says four score and six years have I been his servant, have I been the servant of Jesus, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He eventually, uh, he, he becomes a martyr, right? He doesn't, he doesn't bend, and neither do, do the, uh, the Roman authorities, and so... Uh, he is put to death, and yet his story, his faith, his, his witness of, of steadfastness to Christ and love for Christ in the midst of that pressure and that persecution, it actually caused faith to bloom and to blossom in those who witnessed and who watched and who stood by. It's one of the reasons we have this account, because it was so remarkable. So faith increased, even though the, pr- the persecution was heavy. Like I said, that's a heavy, like, like that's the extreme example, like literally becoming a martyr at the stake, right? So a much, much lighter, very light uh, example of persecution from just my own experience is, uh, comes from a, a philosophy of knowledge and reality class that I took early in college. And uh, I've spoken about this a few times, but I had a professor who just delighted in, uh, you know, he was the was a philosophy professor of knowledge and reality. So he loved to just, you know, kind of tink, tink away at everyone's like presuppositions. And, oh yeah, you think that's true? Why, you know? And so he would just kind of go after us. And especially he loved to mess with the heads and minds of um, young Christian people, you know, often naive Christians who hadn't fully thought through everything. And, uh, and you know, I became one of those people. And it really uh, threw me for a loop. I mean, he, he, on some level, he was just doing his job as a good philosophy professor, but it threw me for for quite a loop for a while. And yet, ultimately, many years later, long story short, I can look back at that, that you know, if we can even call that persecution, I can look back at that and say, man, like, God was faithful, and he actually rebuilt anything that was lost or anything that was... Uh, torn down in that class, in that, in that struggle, and he, he built it back, and he made it stronger. So persecution, do you, do you have these stories in your life? Do you have these, these testimonies from your own life or from people you know and love of how God has worked in the pressure, worked in persecution to, to not crush faith, but to actually cause it to, to bloom and to blossom? We need these stories and we need to share these stories with one another because they're important. They're, they're important testimonies of God's grace and his power, right? His, his awesomeness, his work continuing in the world. So stepping back, looking uh, again at 1 Peter chapter 4, what we're seeing here, I think the question that we wanna ask here for just the next fo- uh, couple moments is this, we, we're thinking about all this, holding it together. The question in my mind is what exactly do disciples of Jesus need to know as they face persecution in this life? What do we need to to hold on to? What do we need to hang on to as we face struggles and and, uh, challenges like this? And I think we see at least three things that we can see uh, in, in these verses that I wanna point us to. First, namely that Jesus has gone before us. We see also as we think about what we need to know in light of persecution, that the Holy Spirit is with us and that judgment is coming. You can see it on the screen. Jesus has gone before us. The Holy Spirit is with us and judgment is coming. And to hang on to these truths is what Paul is saying here in these verses. Verse 13, to kick us off, Peter tells uh, his readers that they should rejoice in so far as they share Christ's sufferings, so that they might also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. In other words, there's a lot going on there, but I think one of the things w- we can see there and we can say is that persecuted Christians are never alone. We're not we're not by ourselves. No matter how intense the fiery trial might be, believers in Jesus are still ultimately sharing, and we are, we are only truly sharing the larger and the more primary suffering, which is the suffering first and foremost of Jesus Christ. We share in his suffering, which is bigger and larger, and we participate with him so that any time we experience suffering in and for the name of Christ, we are participating in the much larger story of what Jesus has done in this world. We think about Jesus as the one who has literally taken the sin of the world upon himself. What heavier load or burden could he bear? So, anytime we struggle just a little bit with evil or with injustice, we're just playing a small part in that larger story. The redemption that Jesus has brought. And so, when it comes then to experiencing persecution and trials and all of these things, Jesus himself has gone before us even to the point of death. Death on the cross. And he's gone before us into glory that we might also have the hope of glory as well. We see, and uh, uh, you know, again, talking about how this pops up in so many places throughout 1 Peter. If we look back at chapter 3 and verse 18, Peter says that Jesus also suffered, Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We see this exchange that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We think also in Peter, how he's, he's talking about Jesus, how he's gone before us in suffering. Peter in chapter 2 re, is really connecting the dots to Isaiah 53. And Peter's really pointing out and making it clear through his words that Jesus is actually the one that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 53. This, this person that we, we refer to as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 and verse 3, especially, we read this one that was foretold, who ultimately we know to be Jesus, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And that is our Savior. He is our Savior. So you and I then. Can actually, as Peter says, rejoice and be glad even in the face of persecution because our Savior has gone before us in suffering and in struggle. And because we know His glory ultimately will be revealed and His glory will be shared. As much as we get to share and participate in His suffering, we get to share in the glory as well. So when it comes to persecution, We need to know that Jesus has gone before us. That's number one. Secondly, disciples of Jesus who face persecution need to know that the Holy Spirit is with us. Verse 14, we see Peter writes that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. How so? You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you you slow down on that statement that is that's just one you just need to keep letting it like wash over you that this, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you the Gospel of John chapter 14 we see that the Holy Spirit according to Jesus is repeatedly referred to as the helper another helper one who will be with the disciples, Jesus says, forever. We can think, as we think about the, the Holy Spirit and persecution, think about, again, Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and telling them uh, what to expect in the future, and he's telling them that they will be arrested and that there will be persecution, and I'm sure this would have been a little bit unnerving and unsettling to the, to these disciples, but Jesus doesn't leave them there alone he says giving them comfort that when when they are taken before authorities and rulers that they don't need to be anxious or afraid about what they're going to say because he says it is not you who are going to speak in that moment but the spirit of your father will speak through you the spirit is there working, interceding, especially in the moments when persecution is heavy, when the threat is on. We see this play out again and again throughout the book of Acts, how the Spirit comes and does amazing work in the early days of the church. Peter himself goes goes above, you know, it's like Peter seems like he's often struggling and he's high and he's low and he's back and forth, and yet, you know, the Spirit comes upon him at Pentecost, and then, man, he, like he blows it up with that amazing Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. That is the Spirit who comes upon us and who rests upon us. Moves in amazing ways. So disciples of Jesus, you and I, as much as we might face persecution today, we we need to know, as well as our brothers and sisters throughout the world, that the Holy Spirit is with us in power and in grace. Do you know that to be true? Have you let you know slow down enough to let that reality wash over you that the Spirit indwells you, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you? Is that right? Mind blowing truth. It's the kind of thing that changes everything when when you really let it sink in. That we are sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption credible truth and this is this is a gift that we receive and not a work that we earn hallelujah have we received the spirit lastly not only do we need to know in the face of persecution that jesus has gone before us and that the holy spirit is with us but also that judgment is coming Judgment is coming. We read in verse 17, Peter writes that, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, Peter says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's a lot there, a lot that's very interesting. But one of the things that we see there is, as we zoom out, is this, uh, this pattern that we can actually note uh, and see throughout the scriptures. And one of the things that I think we see Peter acknowledging here, as he says that for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, what we're seeing there is that uh, this truth that we see God as a covenant God is always uh, dealing with his chosen people first, first, and then with the rest of the nations after that. Because God is a covenant-making and keeping, covenant-keeping God, we know that the Lord comes to his people first, whether that is for salvation and for blessing, or whether, as we see here, whether that is for judgment. And starting with them, then it kind of works outward from his covenant people to the rest of the nations and to the world. This is one of the things we see attested to by Paul, for example, in Romans 2, where Paul says, acknowledging the same kind of pattern of how God works through his covenant nature he says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek and he says but glory and peace for everyone who, who does I'm sorry who does good Again the Jew first and also the Greek. So we see that this pattern of how God works and in the midst of that it's how he works in salvation and it's how he works in judgment. So disciples who are facing hard stuff, facing persecution need to know the judgment is coming. First of all, for us, first of all, for them. And secondly, then for, for others. And you might think, okay, so how, is that, how does that help us? How, does that, how is that comforting to know that judgment is coming and it's gonna start with us? Well, judgment is always one of those things that's kind of a two-edged sword right if you want if you pray and you want hey God like you know bring justice you got to like think about that twice right because you know if you're thinking you want justice and you're thinking about how you want justice on your enemies you have to think about what justice is uh, when it falls on you first right but the gospel for us is that just as that sword falls that sword as we come to Jesus in faith that falls on Christ Instead of us, in place of us, he was pierced so that we would not have to be pierced by the sword. And so we we take comfort because we know judgment is coming, but the wrath is not going to fall on us. The punishment is not going to fall on us. We know then as the people of God that we can look forward to that day, that we can welcome the coming judgment of God, celebrate it as we often pray, come Lord Jesus. And we do that not naively. Like We know if, ju- if God were perfectly just and we weren't covered and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, that would be a frightening day. But because we are clothed in his righteousness, hallelujah, right? We can look forward to that as a day of him working it out and him ending all things that are evil and wrong and putting everything to right as we trust Jesus as our substitute and as we trust that God will will bring justice to those who are perpetrators of persecution, perpetrators of evil, and who are unrepentant of that before him. You might say, okay, you know, there's lots of confidence there that this this day of judgment is going to be a good thing, but what about verse 18? It seems a little off there. It seems a little strange. Or verse 18, Peter says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will we become of the ungodly and the sinner? What's going on there? You know, that doesn't sound like robust, uh, secure salvation, if Peter's saying we're scarcely saved. It, sound, it makes it sound like, okay, we're just kind of barely, you know, God's grace is just barely kind of eking us out of of this coming wrath and judgment. And I, and I, I don't think that's, that's really what is intended here. I think a better way to understand this is that what, what is is being communicated is that Peter is saying essentially that if even the if the righteous are having struggles if the righteous are having a rough go on this earth here and now if we're suffering persecution and it's hard imagine what might come to those who are unrepentant in in the age to come so we do rest secure in Christ and we know that his judgment is coming uh, on all the earth so disciples of Jesus, we need to rest in these truths. We need to know them: that Jesus has gone before us, that the Holy Spirit is with us, and that judgment is coming. Drawing us to a close, verse 19, uh, I found to be really a, a great summary verse for so much of what we see in First Peter, what, what, so much of what has come. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I think this reality that God is a faithful creator that that Peter points our attention to is such a comforting one as we draw to the end of this passage. In many ways, because it reminds us that he is over it all, that he is in charge, he's the creator, he's the sustainer of all things. We can trust in him. There's nothing that is happening that is outside of his, of his purview, his sovereignty. Reminded me this week of one of my favorite psalms, which is Psalm 121. I'll see if I can find it here. Thinking of God is the creator. The, the comfort that that brings. I uh, told the, the folks this morning that I... I recently acquired a new Bible because my other one was falling apart. And uh, so now it's hard to find things. But uh, Psalm 121, it's a song of a sense. And I'm seeing a connection here to what, what Peter's saying in verse 19 of our text. God is the creator in the midst of persecution. The psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? And then he answers his own question. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth? My help comes from God, who is the creator, who's over it all. And he goes on, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So we we rest in that truth. God is our as our creator, as our sustainer. As the one who rests upon us by his spirit and who goes before us in and through his son i uh was reflecting uh, this morning as well in in the message just as a final word that i struggled i think i struggled a bit with this passage this week because i was thinking about the reality of persecution and realizing that uh i as i think on my own life i don't Speaking for myself, I don't feel like I have experienced a lot of persecution because of or for or in the name of Jesus in my life. My, my context, my, my status, my whatever you, however you want to fill in that blank. I, I haven't experienced these fiery trials because, because I'm waving the, the Jesus flag. So I feel like, I, how, how, what can I say to this? When I know that I have brothers and sisters throughout the world, and even, even brothers and sisters throughout this nation who really are experiencing severe and extreme persecution and hardship because of their testimony in the name of Jesus. That's humbling to me, but I think the final place that that leads me is we think about what Peter says in verse 19. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I think one of the good things that we can do is that we can be mindful of our brothers and sisters who are suffering, who are persecuted. We can pray for them. We can seek to partner with them in the gospel in whatever way we can. It's part of our, our calling as his people and as a family in Christ. sermon's just gonna fall off a cliff here. That's That's the end. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and we'll partake of communion together. Father in heaven, God, thank you, uh, Lord, for your grace, for your kindness to us. God, thank you, Lord, that we get to partake of this meal, which reminds us of your love and your steadfastness, right now together. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So friends, hopefully you have a communion cup near you. Thinking on these themes that we've thought on tonight, we are reminded that our God is the one who was persecuted, chose persecution unto death, that we might know life. That's what this meal represents. It is life to us by grace and through faith. So if you believe that tonight, if you are a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive this as life to you that out of the death of Christ comes life. Take a posture of worship, whatever that is, if you want to stand or continue to be seated. Let's hear now these words. The night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, as I do now, ministering in his name. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take now and eat. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me because as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup we're proclaiming the lord's death until he comes again amen let's drink thank you father these physical elements that remind us of your physical body that was given for us May, may we not quickly forget your sacrifice this week your love and your faithfulness in jesus name